Hi, this is Ben Lowe with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Word Became Flesh, with a message entitled, The Word Became Flesh, Part 1. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Today's text is one of the great texts of the Bible. In a very few short sentences, it captures both the essence of the Christmas message and the very heart of the good news of the Christian faith. The text tells us why Christians believe in Jesus and how and why Jesus is in a category by himself and what that means to us. This text tells us why Jesus is superior to everything. See, this text is foundational to our faith. And so let me read it. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I'm simply entitling this sermon, The Word Became Flesh. This is an amazing truth. Let me put it another way. The Christmas story can be summed up in one short line. God's word has been clothed in human flesh. See, John started his story of the life of Jesus by telling us that in order to properly understand Jesus, we've got to go back to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, he says. Before anything existed, that is, before anything except God existed, God was always the speaking God. In the beginning was the Word. First God spoke, and then the universe came to be. And so we see that the Word of God is unlike all other words that have ever been spoken. See, people speak words. They, they make promises. They make declarations. And sometimes they speak truth, and sometimes they speak lies. And sometimes they give opinions, and sometimes they trade in the opinions and stories of others. And James even tells us that the human tongue, even though it's a small member of the body, makes great boasts, and sometimes it's used to bless God, and sometimes it's used to curse others. Human speech is multiple and varied, both a force for evil and it's a force for good. But as powerful as the human tongue is, it can't be compared to the speech of God. When God speaks, the universe explodes into existence. God's word goes out and does his bidding. God's word and God himself can never be separated. See, later on, God spoke through the mouths of the prophets as the Bible, the word of God, began to take shape. But now, says John, the speech of God has become human flesh. And theologians have called this the doctrine of the incarnation. It's, it's one of the keys to understanding Jesus. It tells us that God the Son, who has always existed as God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he didn't just appear to be a man, he fully became a man. You know, in the early church, there was a view about the identity of Jesus, and it was called docetism. And docetists were people who taught that Jesus was not really human at all. He only appeared to be that way. And the reason they said that is because they thought that it must be impossible for the Almighty God to be housed in human flesh. 
And in response, John, in his first letter of John, begins that book with the following statement. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, John says, don't tell me that he only looked human. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him with my hands. I was with him for three years. He was and is fully human in every way. But John doesn't just tell us that he became a man. He says he became flesh. You know, the idea of human flesh is always coupled with the idea of weakness. So, for instance, in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 7, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So when God the Son came to earth, he didn't just seem human, he was fully human. Even though he never ceased being God, and even though he didn't sin, yet he was born with all the full experience of human flesh. See, according to Luke 2, verse 7, Jesus was born just as all human babies are born. His mother gave birth to him. According to Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and that means he learned as normal children learn. He also grew bodily as normal children do. You know, I know some of us have trouble with this, but the nature of human experience is that we learn, we add knowledge, we increase in our knowledge. And we also know that during his life, Jesus exhibited all the characteristics that are common to human experience. John 4 verse 6 tells us that when Jesus was in Samaria, when he sat down at that well in which, you know, he would encounter the Samaritan woman, the reason, says John, that he sat down at that well is, well, he was tired. We also know that he experienced thirst, even as we would. When he fasted 40 days, he was hungry, as all of us would be. And furthermore, and this is where Christians have have often been puzzled, and yet the Bible makes it clear that, that he was tested in every respect, even as we are. See, he knew temptation as we know temptation. He felt keenly and painfully what temptation felt like. And that's so very important. It's not a necessary part of human experience that we sin. That's a part of fallen and damaged humanity. But we do live in a world that's cursed by sin and temptation. That is, an inner enticement to give in to evil. And that was a part of Christ's experience, even while he resisted it by relying on the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus died on the cross, his pain was exactly as we would have experienced that pain. When he died, his death, that is, the tearing of the soul from the body, is exactly as every other human being experiences death. His death wasn't a facade. It was a genuine human death, even while he never ceased to be God. And and that's one of the great mysteries of the Bible. How could he be both the eternal God and fully man? So how could he, as God, be fully omnipotent? And by that, I mean he knows all things. And yet, as man, how is it, you know, after the woman who had an issue of blood for 20 years touched him, that he had to ask, who touched me? So please, don't pass over that matter too quickly. Encounter this matter as the profound mystery that it is. This one is both fully God and fully man. As God, he has 
always existed, fully equal to the Father, both with God and God at the same time. And as man, he was born to a woman at a specific point in history, you know, at about 3 or 4 BC, in a barn in Bethlehem, in the land of Israel. That's the mystery. So when we read the Gospels and when we read the story of Jesus' temptation, Satan coming to him to subvert his mission, Jesus was genuinely tempted. It's because flesh is weak. It is as grass. But Jesus strengthened himself in prayer and in reliance upon his Father. Well, how can that be? See, one songwriter put it this way. I love these words. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. See, it's important for us not only to understand the doctrine of the incarnation so that we can understand the nature of Christ, but also to understand what it actually means to us. See, why is it that this doctrine that God entered into human flesh, I mean, why is it that this is so very important? Do you know how much more powerful a physical word is to a spoken word? Let me give you an example. You know, I remember a lot of things about my wedding day, but I don't remember the sermon that the pastor gave on that day. I, I think it probably had something to do with love and faithfulness, I, I think. I mean, I mean, what else would he talk about? A, a, and I wanted to pay attention, and, and I kind of did, but I just can't remember one word of it to this day. But I do remember watching Kathy come down the aisle on her father's arm. And I remember her hair and her hands, and I remember her eyes, her smile. I remember the touch of her hand. I remember putting the ring on her finger. And I, I remember how her hand felt that first time when I had the wedding ring on it. I, I remember everything about her. You see, her flesh, her physical appearance had everything to do with that day. And I don't think I'm getting sexual. I mean, her flesh was a word to me about love and faithfulness. The pastor spoke about love and faithfulness, but the word became flesh in her. That moment is burned into my soul. It was a word about love and faithfulness. It was a word made flesh. Ask someone which is more powerful, a lecture on poverty or a month spent in a refugee camp with starving and diseased children. That's a word made flesh. That's why what happened at Christmas is so overwhelmingly profound. The word became flesh. Looking back on 2017, remember incredible words of encouragement received from so many. Mike, who wrote, I just heard a message that was truly convicting. Thank you, Dr. Newfeld, for having the guts to preach the truth. Andy said, I can't believe I haven't listened before. Thank you for not being afraid to tell it as it says. I now listen every day. And Liz, I just love the teaching. Dr. Newfeld brings life to my day through the scriptures. Comments like these and many more are evidence God is at work and we couldn't be more grateful. We also realize these comments are only possible as friends across Canada pray and financially support this ministry. December is a critical time financially as we move into a new year. Our goal for this month is $400,000, and we're praying that you'll play a part in reaching that goal. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, when John says, 
that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. You know, that line is said in the Greek perfect tense. John is saying, that which I saw with my eyes, and the image is burned into my retina. The sound is still ringing in my ears. My fingers are still tingling with a touch. This, he says, came in a way that I can't forget. So please don't misunderstand. I mean, when you go to church and when your pastor preaches the actual text of Scripture, he goes over the text verse by verse, he explains its meaning, he makes application into your life. I mean, we call that preaching the Word, and that Word is powerful. Paul even says, it pleased the Lord through the power of what is preached to save those who believed. Indeed, in that passage, Paul even uses the word folly, the foolishness of what was preached. That is, on the one hand, it's just words spoken from a pulpit, and yet it changes lives. It brings the hand of God, his saving purposes, into our lives. That's amazing. But what makes Christian preaching so powerful is that when it's done right, it combines two things. I mean, the first is a faithful exposition of the actual text of Scripture, paying attention to what's actually being said. But when it's done right, no preaching is a lecture. Rather, it comes from the mouth of a man who is himself ruled by the Scripture that he preaches. The preacher himself has sat under that very text. The hand of God has come to him through that text. It rests upon him. And in reality... He is enfleshing the word as he preaches. See, the same is true about how we live out the Christian life. Once in a while, we speak about incarnational ministry, and incarnational ministry means that the words that we speak become flesh. Years ago, Kathy and I were in a Bible study with a couple, and I'm going to call them Jim and Patty. And Jim and Patty had a severely autistic son. And the strange thing about some autistic children is that they refuse to be hugged or comforted. And their son actually kept Jim and Patty up night after night, his screams and his cries, and and the fact that so little could be done to comfort him. Well, Jim told me that he often went to work, and some days he couldn't even remember where he was. He was just so weary. And one night, a couple from their church showed up and said, let's take your son home for tonight. I think you need a break. And Jim told me that was the first time he had slept all night for a very long time. And Jim told me that he had heard a lot of sermons on the love of Christ, but that night it came to him in flesh, and it was utterly transforming. You and I need to learn from the incarnation. It's never enough to just believe the words of the Bible. It must become enfleshed in us. Love, mercy, truth, faith, grace, holiness, these aren't just words. They're intended for flesh, for genuine human experience. You've never known servanthood until you serve someone at great personal cost to yourself. That's what God did in his son. God came to us and spoke wrapped in human skin. He taught the lost. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He drove out demons. He held little children and blessed them. He died on the cross for our sins and expressed love even to the soldier who drove nails into his hands and feet. That's how God spoke. Never has the human race heard such words before. I mean, ask the widow of Nain, who was taking her only son on a funeral pyre, what the word of God meant to her as Jesus, the word, raised her son from the dead. Ask the man who was a leper 
who was excluded from his community, who in an audacious act of courage knelt before the word made flesh and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, this event, the word becoming flesh, well, that's unheard of. No other religion has anything that's even vaguely like this. God's word has come to us clothed in human flesh. Look again at John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the wording there is really quite profound. And in the original language, it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. That image takes us back to a display of God's glory. That's an amazing series of displays of glory that were described in the Old Testament. The first of those is found in Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 to 11. Let me read that. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. So imagine living in the desert with the people of Israel and seeing this pillar of cloud descend upon the tent. God had come into the camp. God was speaking with his servant. And Joshua, well, we're told he just couldn't get himself to leave that tent. This is where God would come down. And then later in Exodus, we're told that there was a tabernacle that was built and the cloud again settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the same thing happened much later on when the temple was built. You know, Solomon built a temple and dedicated it to God. And then we're told, and I'm reading 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And yet, listen to what Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. Same chapter, verse 27. Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heaven, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you how much less this temple I have built. See, that's the point. Nothing on earth, not a tent of meeting, not the tabernacle, not even the temple can contain the glory of God. Indeed, even though the whole universe is God's creation and displays his glory, yet even that can't contain God's glory. God's glory is simply greater and vaster and more brilliant than anything in all creation. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen in nature is but a faint, ever so faint reflection of the God who made it. But here's the point. The body, the flesh of Jesus, his becoming a baby, is a complete and perfect display of God's glory. The birth of that baby is the indescribable glory of God among us. And that's stunning because, you see, Jesus came in such humility rather than in grandeur and majesty. 
He came as a baby, born in poverty, lived his life in weakness. He had no place to lay his head. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. There was nothing in his personal appearance that would attract us to him. Yet this carpenter from Nazareth is the stunning, complete, and perfect display of the glory of the one true God. That's why John the Baptist in verse 15 said, he simply has surpassed me because he was before me. Jesus, when viewed rightly, is superior to all things. And it is this that has caused Christians, followers of Jesus, to be persecuted. I mean, the first Christians lived in the ancient Roman world and they were persecuted not because they believed in Christ, but because they said Christ was superior to all things. You see, ancient Christians were told that they were required to swear an oath indicating that Caesar was Lord and they couldn't, for that would be indicating that someone was equal to Christ. So they were charged with treason. You know, years ago, I had the privilege of being invited to visit the home of a man named Nikolai Moldovianu. That visit was a great moment in my life personally. Mr. Moldovianu was a great musician and a hymn writer for the Romanian church. He's also been called the Bach of Romania. When the communists took over, they demanded that Mr. Moldovianu would use his talents to write songs glorifying the Marxist-Leninist revolution in his country. And Nikolai Moldoviano refused. He said his gifts were given to him by God and he would only use them to glorify Christ. And so he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for attempting to overthrow the Romanian regime. Richard Wormbrandt said of Moldoviano, whom he met in prison, he was one of the greatest saints I ever met. He came smiling from the torture room. See, the whole point and the reason I'm sharing this is men like this testify that one can never give enough glory to Jesus regardless of the cost. See, the great and remarkable thing that has happened is not that men would sacrifice everything for Jesus. The most remarkable thing is this, that the Word became flesh. That's utterly astonishing. Thanks, John. I just want to cover one point again because I think it's critical in our spiritual walk. Help us understand incarnational love. Yeah, I mean, we read the Word in the Bible, and uh, however, when the Word of the Bible actually takes root in our own lives and transforms us so that we as transformed individuals will actually bring God's Word to someone by touching them, by, by relieving their burdens, by lifting them up in some fashion, they begin to hear the Word in a remarkable new way. And that is the Word becoming flesh. And God does call us to do that, and we have the example of what happened in the birth of Christ. So that's the, the good news of the Gospel. What a great gift to show that incarnational love this season. Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. John the Evangelist stated the Christmas message most succinctly when he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message of Christmas, if we think about it, is utterly astonishing. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself, condescending to become a man. God has visited us and brought us a message of mercy and love. 
On behalf of all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, I want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. May the joy of this season and the assurance of the love of God be felt in your home, your family, and among your loved ones. I also want to thank you for your faithful support to this ministry. Be encouraged. Emmanuel, God is with us. Have a Merry Christmas.